Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix died at the age of 27, and he lived a life of highs and lows. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. 10 would be the average number of seconds it would take for a listener to hear his music and to fall in love with his unique style of playing. Seven would be the number of R&B bands that fired or traded him for insubordination for not conforming, for upstaging the lead singer. Imagine that, firing Jimi Hendrix. One more would be the number of tabs he stuck on his tongue for a maiden LSD voyage in an apartment on 57th Street with a girl he just met. Five would be the number of rock royalty who saw him play in a cramped New York City club and who were not initially impressed. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Charlie Watts, Andrew Locke Oldham, Seymour Stein. I'm talking about you. And four would be the number of years he'd have left to live after the Animals bass player Chaz Chandler saw him play at Café Wa in Greenwich Village and vowed to make him the biggest sensation in the UK. All totaling 27. On this, our fifth episode of season one, oppressive R&B singers, maiden LSD voyages, unimpressed Rolling Stones, and the always searching Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Little Richard's ass came crashing back down onto the piano stool 
having just lifted five inches into the air during the chorus of Long Tall Sally, and he thought, something's missing. He banged on the piano keys some more, his left hand so forceful it almost broke through the ivory and wood to split the damn thing in half. Sweat dripping from under his six-inch pompadour, down his pancake makeup face, falling in constant droplets from his nose. With any luck, his mascara wasn't running too much, but you could never be too sure. The crowd swelled and screamed, and Little Richard's band, the Upsetters, struggled to match the noise level. He needed a moment in between chords, in between shouts, and his feverish head shakes to figure out what was missing. He felt exposed. He looked down at his chest and noticed that his tie was gone. His dress shirt was ripped open at the top, and the first few buttons were gone. He put his mouth to the microphone and screamed some more. We're going to have some fun tonight, and looked at the front of the crowd. The girls were hysterical, shrieking, arms extended towards the stage like Little Richard was the antidote, and they were sick, sick, sick. And one of those girls had stolen his tie, ripped it right off of his body during the chorus of Long Tall Sally. The show had already been stopped twice by the police that night at the Royal Theater in Baltimore because these chicks were rushing the stage, lunging at him, hands like claws. They wanted a piece, a piece of his jacket, his tie, whatever. These girls from the burbs would be the talk of the town with a souvenir ripped from the living, breathing body of little Richard himself. More girls were up in the balcony, bum-rushing the edge, trying to hurl themselves over. More cops up there, holding girls back, preventing teenagers from plummeting to their death at the feet of a sweaty, frenzied little Richard. And the band stopped. Little Richard hollered his thanks into the mic, and something came sailing through the air and landed on the drum set. Drawers, some girls' panties. They now hung off the top of the hi-hat, and the drummer peeled them off with his drumstick, twirled them around in the air, and flung them towards the piano. Little Richard laughed deliriously and counted off into the next number. One, two, three, tutti-frutti, ah, Rudy. And all the while, more panties rocketed from the crowd and hit the stage. On this hot June night in 1957, a crowd went crazy in Baltimore. Sweat, heat, running mascara, hurled panties, balcony jumpers, stage rushers, Little Richard and the Upsetters detonating an up-tempo R&B bomb in the middle of it all. It was fucking insane. Little Richard was a self-proclaimed architect of rock and roll, and it's hard not to take him at his word. He injected camp into R&B music, took jump music and made it leap forward, took swing music and gave it a stomach-churning underdog. He went a wop bop a bop a lop bamboo and everyone stood up at attention. Says he taught Paul McCartney how to squeal, says he taught Mick Jagger how to strut, and says he inspired Jimi Hendrix to transcend blues guitar. Over 60 years later, Tutti Frutti still sounds like the revolutionary romp under the covers that it was meant to be. Sex, the dirty kind. And Little Richard was indeed revolutionary. Immensely talented, and yes, sex incarnate, but Little Richard was also a raging egomaniac, an oppressive band leader, an insufferable control freak, a deluded originator, an insatiable sex addict. He told his band members exactly where they should stand. He'd find them not just for missed notes like James Brown, he'd find them for not calling him king. He'd find them for being too pretty. He'd find them for wearing frillier shirts and fancier outfits than him, because ain't nobody prettier than Little Richard. And when he was younger, he performed in drag as Princess Levon, 
As a kid growing up in God-fearing Macon, Georgia, he'd wear makeup and his mother's curtains as a long, flowing dress. His church deacon father was having none of it. He'd tie his son up naked and beat him for not being more manly. And he described himself as omnisexual. He was hot for girls, hot for boys, big-time voyeur. He once had a devil's threesome with Buddy Holly and a stripper. Backstage, finishing off just as the MC was introducing Buddy to the stage. Naked, angel dust powdered fuckfests on the floor of hotel rooms were the norm. Orgies, gender fluidity, lots and lots of cocaine. A womp baba loop and busted nuts for days. And of course, God. The duality of Little Richard. The child of God both enamored with and ashamed of his carnal desires. Some would say his perversions. Sometimes he'd bring his Bible with him to orgies. Get thee to the orgy, brother, and do it with God by your side. Little Richard searching for his true self, God on one shoulder and the devil on the other. Searching through a haze of powdered drugs, searching through naked bodies pressed up against each other, searching for the tie that was ripped from his neck while he was singing Long Tall Sally. Years after Jimi Hendrix saw Little Richard preach in Seattle, he found himself back in the originator's orbit and on the payroll. In Atlanta, 1964, Jimmy met Glenn Willings, guitarist in Little Richard's band. Jimmy was sitting in a restaurant with his guitar on his lap. He'd been touring recently with Gorgeous George, but had missed the bus when it left for the city the next day. Why, yes, Jimmy told Glenn, I am a guitar player. I am looking for work. And Jimmy was going by Maurice James at that point, the first of many known to guitar he would assume over his early professional years. Glenn took Maurice to audition for Little Richard, who was looking for another guitarist. Little Richard hired him, no reservations. Maurice, Jimmy, whoever he was, this guy played like B.B. King and he had energy to spare. Jimmy would soak up so much about Little Richard and use it as he struggled to define himself. The way he dressed, the way he sang, the way he swaggered, the way he didn't give a fuck, even his mustache. Some saw a student honoring a teacher, but Little Richard saw it differently. Little Richard saw this kid, Maurice James, if that was actually his real name, as someone who wanted to steal the spotlight, wanted to be prettier than Little Richard, and ain't nobody prettier than Little Richard. Jimi Hendrix plus Little Richard may seem like a match made in heaven to many, but it was the opposite. Richard the King would find Jimmy the Kid constantly. He'd warn him, but no matter, the kid would always find a way to undermine the king. But one night, after a show in Washington, D.C., the kid missed the bus, and on that night, the king had finally had enough. King refused to pay the kid for that night's gig. Now, who the hell did the kid think he was? He violated all the rules that night. He even found some new rules to violate. As soon as the upsetter stepped out on the stage of the Golden Bear in Huntington Beach, California, little Richard was furious. There was the band stationed behind his piano like they were told, and then there was the kid, Maurice, Jimmy, his jet black hair and luscious curls, wearing a blouse and a goddamn bolero hat on the king's goddamn stage. Bull shit. Little Richard took his anger out of the piano as he launched into Kansas City, but he couldn't take his eyes off Jimmy. And then it got worse. 
Two songs in, Jimmy lost his damn mind, played the guitar with his teeth, and the crowd went wild. Flung it up over his head for a quick solo, and the crowd roared their approval. Stuck it out from his crotch, pointed towards the girls in the audience. He even wiggled his tongue. The small but ravenous crowd ate it up. Little Richard could hardly contain himself. Ain't nobody prettier than Little Richard. Ain't nobody flashier than Little Richard. Ain't nobody paying money to see nobody on that stage but Little fucking Richard. I am Little Richard, the king shouted at the band backstage when the show was over. Though his wide-eyed gonna fuck up a guy's stare was directed at Jimmy. It was the same stare he made when he sang tunes like True Fine Mama and Ready Teddy. Was Little Richard thinking about sex? About whooping your ass? You just could never tell. I am the only Little Richard. I'm the only one that's pretty around here. Are you deaf? Are you stupid? And then he waved the back of his hand towards Jimmy like an emperor would try to scatter the riffraff out of his kingdom. Get rid of that outfit at once. If you think I'm paying you after what you pulled this evening, you've got another thing coming. Jimmy took it all in stride. He knew it was a risk that he had to take, to dress like that, to play like that. He wanted to feel what Little Richard felt each night, to feel wanted by the audience, to perform and have the audience respond. He also wanted to knock the king down a peg, no doubt. Jimmy and Glenn Willings walked away from their boss's meltdown that night laughing, making fun of the quote-unquote queen of rock and roll. And a short time later, Jimmy was chatting up Little Miss Strange at the bar after a show and lost track of time. And the upsetter's tour bus hit the road. Jimmy wasn't on it. When Jimmy caught up with the band, Little Richard's brother and tour manager, Robert Penniman, intercepted him before he could get into another row with the king. And Jimmy gave him every excuse he had. He should have seen this chick, Bob. She was F-I-N-E fine. A little Miss Strange, indeed. Yeah, 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 Robert said. Listen, kid, you're done. You're late all the time, and when you're not late, you make my brother look like a fool. And there's only one king. It ain't Elvis, and it sure as hell ain't you. Jimmy lost the little Richard gig the same way he had gotten it. I'm missing a bus. It was no surprise to Jimmy that he'd been fired. At this point, it was kind of his thing. Jumping from group to group, searching for the right fit, the right chemistry. He was talented, flamboyant, a hungry player, all of those things, but he was also real good at getting fired. After he left the army, Jimmy toured the Chitlin circuit with the King Casuals. Remember them? Two Ks? The Chitlin circuit was a string of African-American clubs in the American South where black bands could play to black audiences. Pool halls, barbecue joints, roadhouses, Instead of finding a day job to supplement his meager earnings, Jimmy started to pick up side gigs as a guitarist. He toured throughout the circuit with R&B icons like Carla Thomas, Jerry Butler, Slim Harpo, and Solomon Burke. Burke was larger than life, huge voice with a huge presence to match. Not only a soul singer, but a preacher to boot and a part-time undertaker. That's right, undertaker. Dude had all the bases covered. He was on the pop charts with Cry To Me and Just Out Of Reach of My Two Open Arms. Solomon Burke's at the center of one of the craziest stories ever about touring the Deep South in the 60s. Burke and his band once played the Ku Klux Klan's annual rally in Mississippi. And they had no idea, no advance warning. They just booked a gig and showed up ready to play and get paid. The sheriff gave them specific instructions about when they'd start and when they'd stop and pledged police protection during the show as well as an escort back to the highway when it was over. Burke and his band took the stage, looked out at thousands and thousands of KKKers in hooded robes walking towards them. Burke played on like a boss and got paid like a boss and then got the fuck out of Dodge. 
The next night, they were back playing the black audiences again. But to Jimi Hendrix, years later, Solomon Burke's tour bus was like having a traveling convenience store. Juice, candy, gum, cookies, booze, ice water, sandwiches, hungry, thirsty, Burke would happily sell you whatever you were craving. And this particular package store with Jimmy on the circuit included Otis Redding and Joe Tex, both of whom were just starting to come into their own and hit their stride on the charts. Again, like the pairing with Little Richard, it was too good to be true. Jimmy was all over the place. His playing was too flamboyant, too hungry, too outside the box for what Burke needed. Burke was looking for the right player, and Jimmy was looking for the right fit. Never the twain shall meet. So, Solomon Burke traded Jimi Hendrix to Otis Redding for a couple of horn players one night on the tour. No hard feelings, kid. This just isn't working. Just gonna get you out of my mind. A few days later, Otis ditched Jimmy for the same reasons. Too flashy, too out there, too hard to handle. They dumped Jimmy on the side of the road. Once again, he stood in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in the American South, while a tour bus pulled away from him. More ill-fated pairings followed. Curtis Mayfield had Jimmy ejected from his tour when Jimmy busted Curtis's amp during an opening set playing with the Marvelettes. It happened again with Bobby Womack, and again with Ike and Tina Turner, and again with Sam and Dave. The Isley brothers, and they didn't fire Jimmy. He just couldn't conform to their dress code and dance routines. And Jimmy didn't fit in on anyone's stage. So Jimmy went back to New York City, where he had to hawk his guitar to pay the rent. And then he had two fortuitous meetings. One was in the lobby of the seedy Times Square adjacent Hotel America. Fate put him in front of Curtis Knight. Curtis worked the city as a pimp first and a band leader second. He fronted his own band, the Squires, and they needed a guitar player. He wanted Jimmy. He let him use one of his guitars, share the spotlight with him, get him a professional contract, an offer Jimmy couldn't refuse. The second meeting was with Linda Keith, 20-year-old British Vogue model, girlfriend of the Rolling Stones' Keith Richards. She was in town ahead of the Stones' 1966 American tour and was doing some recon on culture and music, taking the pulse. She saw Jimmy play with Curtis Knight at the Cheetah Club one night and invited him back to her friend's apartment where she was staying. And that night, she also invited him to put something on his tongue, a thin tab, no bigger than the fingerprint on her forefinger, LSD. Jimi Hendrix was about to take his first trip, and nothing would ever again be the same. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, 
even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you, because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Jimi Hendrix looked into the mirror and saw Marilyn Monroe looking back at him. The reflection was his, but the face was not. The face was white, not black. Platinum blonde hair, not jet black. Squinty eyes and pursed lips. He turned his head slightly to the right and Marilyn's head followed. He opened his eyes wide and hers did the same. It was the LSD talking, definitely the LSD. The tab Linda gave him just a few hours earlier up here in Linda's friend's apartment on 57th Street. She had a hotel room booked in the city while she waited for her boyfriend, Keith Richards, and the Rolling Stones to arrive on tour. But she wanted human interaction. Friends. New friends that she could drop acid with. She had seen Jimmy for the first time that night at the Cheetah Club in Manhattan and couldn't believe her ears, couldn't believe her eyes. He played like no one else, commanded the stage like no one else. So why the hell was he slumming it at the Cheetah with Curtis Knight? Jimmy didn't know how long it was supposed to take before the acid kicked in, but right now seemed about right. Marilyn Monroe looked back at him from the mirror, and everything in that moment changed. The doors to his mind swung wide open. The air in the apartment caressed his arms. He touched the wooden frame of the mirror, and it was velvet. And the apartment's walls were a far-out trip on their own, man, acid or no acid painted deep red with leopard spots. It was the perfect canvas to get lost in. If you looked at the wall long enough, the spots would start to melt into each other. They became one. That wall was blowing, blowing his mind. Is it tomorrow or just the end of time? Jesus, how green had he been when Linda brought him back to the apartment on 57th Street that night? She was beautiful, short black hair, Mondrian-esque dress, big square earrings, proper English accent as sharp as glass. And she started talking to Jimmy about Sonny Terry and Robert Johnson and Sonny Boy Williamson. 
Jimmy was smitten, of course, but he was indeed green. Want to try some acid, Linda asked. Nah, I don't think so, Jimmy replied, but I'd like to try some of that LSD if you have it. Jimmy had puffed some weed, some hash, he'd popped some pills, but this was new territory, uncharted territory. No one on the Chitlin circuit was dropping acid. No one in Harlem was tripping. Harlem was smoking and snorting. LSD was designer, a drug for white kids. Linda had Keith Richards' tweed box of 45s with her, which they put on the hi-fi in the apartment. John Lee Hooker's dimples, Little Walter's My Babe. She pulled out her copy of Bob Dylan's brand new Blonde on Blonde, his hair loud and proud on the front cover like a white Jewish version of Jimmy's Do. Dylan sang about everybody getting stoned, and Jimmy thought, how perfect is this? Dylan sang about a leopard skin pillbox hat, and Jimmy looked at the leopard spots on the wall again and thought, what in the actual fuck? And they sat on the apartment floor, listening to music and tripping hard, and let the music paint pictures in their minds. The doors were blown open, and as he continued to search for himself, Jimmy was offered new possibilities by LSD. The entire experience didn't give him a defined character to slip into, not even a roadmap of sorts. It offered him the freedom to slip between ideas. A sound was a sound was a sound. A sound could be a color. A color could be a feeling. A feeling could be an idea. What if six turned out to be nine? I don't mind. And Linda asked Jimmy why he played with that pimp, Curtis Knight. He could do so much better. Jimmy explained that Curtis was an okay guy. He was the first one in a long time to truly value him as his own player. He offered him a place in the spotlight, up front, next to the front man. Plus, Jimmy didn't own a guitar anymore, and Curtis let him use one. Shit, Linda thought she could get him a guitar. And when the Stones rolled into town that summer, Linda borrowed one of Keith's guitars, a white Fender Stratocaster, and passed it on to Jimmy. Up to this point, Jimmy had played budget guitars, guitars that didn't break the bank but were functional nonetheless. Next to Gibson's Les Paul, Leo Fender's Strat was one of the quintessential rock guitars, a player's guitar, a real guitar. It would go on to be the guitar that was immediately identified with Jimi Hendrix. Linda, the LSD, the Strat, the years and gigs under his belt playing for others, Jimmy took all of it and tried to imagine what it would look like if he did his own thing. To pull all of these experiences through that wide open door, to have a bag of his own, as James Brown would say, to get up and do his thing, step aside and let a man in. He formed a pickup group, something to do when he wasn't running with Curtis the Pimp. A couple of dudes he ran into at Manny's Music included Jeff Skunk Baxter, who would go on to rock one of the greatest mustaches in the galaxy as well as play with Steely Dan. Jimmy took advantage of the forward momentum and changed his identity again. He was no longer Maurice James, he was now Jimmy James, and this was his group, the Blue Flames. Their new hop became Café Wa, ground zero for hipsters in Greenwich Village where one of his heroes, Bob Dylan, had conquered the little world of New York City before tackling the world at large. Linda was hellbent to get Jimmy signed, for someone to notice he was that good. Surely it would be an easy task to bring any unsuspecting musician or manager down the stairs to the dank den of the Wa into that small room where Jimmy's stage presence alone would be undeniable. First, she brought the Rolling Stones manager, Andrew Log Oldham, downstairs. He barely paid attention to Jimmy. He was worried about whatever the hell was going on between this hotshot hippie on stage and his guitarist's girlfriend, Pass. Next, she brought the Rolling Stones themselves downstairs. 
Most of them talked amongst themselves as Jimmy ran through Wild Thing and Hang On Sloopy and Dylan's like a rolling stone. Keith Richards watched the whole thing, stone-faced, arms crossed tightly. He scowled in the general direction of the hotshot who was playing his guitar and been hanging around his lady and listening to his records. Hard pass. Then she brought Seymour Stein down the stairs. Stein had just founded Sire Productions, which would soon morph into Sire Records. He got cold feet as soon as Jimmy took that clean white Stratocaster and smashed it. Smashed Keith Richards' Stratocaster, like it meant nothing to him. A guitar is a guitar is a guitar. The fourth time would be the charm, when Linda brought a six foot four bass player with a mod cut and an English accent from Newcastle down the stairs to the basement below McDougal Street. And from there, everything would change for Jimi Hendrix in an instant. Jimi Hendrix sang the opening line to Hey Joe, and Chaz Chandler, bass player for the UK's The Animals, spilled his milkshake all over his lap. It was Pavlovian. Lyric and melody begets totally embarrassing snafu in public. The milkshake was everywhere. The vanilla cream running down his trouser legs splattered on one of his leather shoes, a petal of glop pooling on the floor. Linda Keith sat next to him in the audience at the Café Wa and she scuttled her chair backwards to avoid getting sprayed with friendly fire. Chaz barely noticed the spill. His attention was undivided, both eyes on Jimmy. Holy shit, Chaz exclaimed in his thick accent. Whether it was divine intervention or sheer coincidence is beside the point. The fact of the matter is that Chaz had been listening to Tim Rose's Hey Joe that summer and thought it would be a chart topper in England if he could find the right artist to cover it. And now, here he was, in this hip basement club in New York City, next to a woman he just met, watching a guitar player he'd never heard of, and the guy opens his set with, Hey Joe. It was fucking cosmic. Never mind that the guy summoned forth these transformative covers of soul nuggets like In the Midnight Hour, Knock on Wood, and Mercy Mercy. It was like Chaz was hearing them all for the first time. The Trogs, Wild Thing. That was Jimmy's now, and they were all Jimmy's now. Linda ran into Chaz the day before outside another club in New York. She didn't know him personally, but knew of him from the Stones. Knew he played bass for the Animals, a British invasion group out of Newcastle with a couple of iconic hits, including House of the Rising Sun, which was huge on both sides of the pond. Chaz stood at six feet, four inches. He was always in the back of the band's promo shots, towering over the other chaps, the long bass to boot. Keith Richards had mentioned to Linda that Chaz was leaving the animals after their current tour and was shifting his focus to producing and artist management. He just had to see Jimmy play, Linda insisted. This guy could be the guy you've been looking for. He plays all the time at Cafe Wa. You feel like you're in this alternate reality when you're watching him, watching this guy who is immediately identifiable as one of the best things you've ever seen. Yet the rest of the room is somewhere else. They're not witnessing the same thing that you're witnessing. It's almost like it's so good that it's missing the majority of these people. And they don't know what they're looking at, don't know how to explain it, don't know how to rationalize it. You've never seen anything like this, Chaz. Chaz agreed to meet Linda the next afternoon at Café Wa and witness Jimmy firsthand for himself. 
On stage, Jimmy was no longer beholden to the vision of another band leader, no longer held to someone else's dress code, someone else's performance style, didn't have to worry about being fined or something stupid. He could explore what it meant to be himself, whatever that was, even if he was still hiding behind this Jimmy James persona. Chaz had the same reaction that Linda originally had. If anything, his enthusiasm transcended hers. He thought to himself, this is ridiculous. Why hasn't anyone snatched this guy up yet? There must be a catch. After the show, Chaz introduced himself and cut to the chase. He wanted Jimmy to come back to England with him. There was a reason why America wasn't catching on and an equal reason why England was prime for an introduction. And the history of Music Hall was still in England's musical bloodstream. The flamboyance, the theatrics, the fantasy, and the whimsy. And the scene over there was full of bands smitten with American blues and R&B. Two places where Jimmy was coming from. It was surefire, a way to exit the disaffected scene in the States and become something entirely different abroad. Not to die, but to be reborn. Away from land so battered and torn forever. Jimmy took a drag from his half-smoked cigarette, did that nervous reaction thing where his nostrils flared up and his closed lips curled into a half-smile, eyes avoiding Chaz's to look up at the low ceiling. He wasn't sure. England? That was like another world, man. What if it was a disaster? What if he failed? He was hawking guitars and relying on the kindness of strangers in a country he was familiar with. What would he do if he fell on hard times in a foreign land? On the other hand, what the hell? What's the worst that could happen? In the States, Jimmy had encountered his fair share of roadblocks, tribulations, non-believers. If it wasn't Little Richard firing his ass for insubordination, then it was the black-owned hotels he had to stay at that were 20, 30, 40 miles away from the venue he was playing. Sure, he won $25 at the Apollo Theater's amateur contest, but if he kept accidentally breaking gear that belonged to the likes of Curtis Mayfield, he was going to need a lot more than talent show money. Chaz was already more excited about Jimmy than all of the leaders of all of the bands he had been in over the years. He obviously knew the business, and he was experienced, and he was willing to put it on the line. Jimmy stubbed out the end of his smoke. Decision time, now or never. Take your time, hurry up, the choice is yours, don't be late. And Jimmy stuck out his hand to shake Chaz's. Chaz had a promise in one thing though, he wanted to meet Eric. Was that all? Making an intro to Eric was easy, consider it done. Actually, how's this? Chaz would hook Jimmy up so he could sit in with Eric on stage as soon as he got over there. Jimi Hendrix could then let his guitar do the talking to Eric Clapton. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. 
Season one features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and season two will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. What's up for your ears? Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. At- 